Welcome to the latest episode of The Wharton Current. My name is Tom Obermeyer, and today my co-host Ellie McDonald and I had the great pleasure of sitting down with John O'Donnell, founder and CEO of Rondo Energy. Prior to Rondo, John had founded five other companies, both within energy and climate, as well as the semiconductor and supercomputer industries. We discuss why industrial heat has historically been seen as a hard to decarbonize industry, how Rondo is seeking to change that by deploying its heat battery, and how its product differs from other energy storage technologies. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. And without further ado, let's jump right in. John, thank you so much for joining the Warden Current today. We're very excited to hear about you, hear about Rondo Energy, and your story leading up to founding it. Um, before we get into that, maybe you could introduce our listeners to your professional background and what you've done prior to founding Rondo Energy. Yeah, thank you. I'm delighted to be joining you. Um, Rondo is the sixth startup that I've done. I built companies in the computer industry. I built supercomputers that your iPhone is much faster than those supercomputers. I built a company in the semiconductor industry that uh, built the world's first internet connected television way before its time, among other things. In 2005, uh, my first job was in energy. I worked at a fusion research lab, my first job. And by 2005, I realized that there is nothing more important for anyone to be working on than solutions for the climate crisis. Uh, I spent a little while after selling one company, working with a couple of venture capitalists, looking at a pretty wide range of everything from carbon removal to new energy infrastructure. And look, if we're going to make a difference to the climate crisis, we have to have enormous flows of private capital building zero carbon energy infrastructure. And we have the technologies around us. They need to be cheap enough that, you know, they drive to scale. And, um, I wound up after looking at a lot of stuff, uh, getting very interested in a space that had kind of gone to sleep that had come back, which was the solar thermal space, making steam from sunshine with mirrors. Uh, I put together a company called Osra that, uh, the French nuclear giant Arriva wound up buying in I think 2009 which was one of the first positive exits in Cleantech 1.0. Um, and I briefly spent time as a VC looking at carbon removal technologies of which I was quite skeptical, which was, I was looking at them. Uh, and I met the founders of a company called Glasspoint and I became the first employee there. And we built out what the International Energy Agency says is more than half of all the solar industrial heat running in the world today. The fact that what we did is more than half of everything that's out there today is cool and pathetic. The, the world needs a huge amount of this. And we are just at the starting point in transforming the industrial sector. And, you know, we put Rondo together, the world changed around us during the 15 years that I was driving these concentrating solar power technologies to large scale, the world changed wind and solar PV electric power dropped 90% in cost. We are at a spectacular moment in history 
we're on a per unit of energy cost basis, wind and solar power are cheaper than fuels, not just cheaper than conventional electricity, but cheaper than fuel for heat in most of the world and headed for all of the world. So, you know, as you know, we're at Rondo, we've put together a completely new way to harvest that and address the biggest sector of industrial, of in energy infrastructure that has not yet been transformed. Thanks, John. I think that's a really interesting backstory and it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. Jumping off of the end of your answer, can you tell us a bit more about Rondo Energy and your inspiration for founding the company? Sure. Uh, a Rondo is a 17th century musical form with the same melody comes back again and again. Uh, we're, we're tackling a problem that some of us have been working 15 years on, some of us a decade, on decarbonizing industrial heat. Um, indu you know, industry is the largest share of energy use in the world. Three quarters of the energy used in industry is for heat driving some process, not for electric power. And industrial heat alone is like 26% of total world CO2 emissions. And if you want to transform industrial heat, you've got to have a solution that is cost competitive or cheaper than business as usual. It's been easy for governments, for example, to create policies in the electric power sector, and in some cases in the transportation sector to drive new technologies, climate-friendly te generation and technologies to scale because it's the same thing again and again. A unit of electricity is a unit of electricity. It's been much more challenging in the industrial sector because each industrial process is different. It uses energy at different temperatures. Transforming heat via policy drivers is harder. In order for it to really go to scale, it's got to be cheaper. But at the same time, it also is, has to be tightly tied to the industrial process. It's not like you can connect an intermittent source of renewable electricity at a substation and have the electricity grid filling the rest. You're building equipment that's inside the factory. It doesn't have something else backing it up. Production is going to rely on it. There is a very high standard you must meet in safety, cost, temperature for many of these industrial processes. And using electricity as a source of industrial heat, you go back three or four years, everybody will rightly tell you that's stupid. Electricity is a lot more expensive than fuel. No one would ever do that. But people really are just recognizing, many folks are just recognizing the world is turned upside down. Electricity, intermittent electricity is cheaper than fuel. If you're in West Texas, if you buy electricity continuously, it's three times the price of burning natural gas. But if you had something and you were buying electricity just four hours a day, you were buying all your energy four hours a day, it's a third the price of natural gas. So this thing that we're doing at Rondo, capturing intermittent electricity to deliver continuous industrial heat, again, a few years ago, it didn't make sense. It is very clearly the lowest cost path for decarbonization. And I think the only one of the options that reduces cost versus business as usual. 
McKinsey writes reports on industrial decarbonization. You look at their most recent one. What are the options? We've got biofuels. Okay, take your current fuel supply cost, multiply by three, and recognize that the entire world biofuel supply that could be built is less than 10% of current world energy demand. Okay, you might want to do some of that, but it's not going to take you very far. Carbon capture, by definition of any kind, is an increase in cost versus business as usual. Turn off the carbon capture unit, you burn 20% less fuel. Uh, electrolytic hydrogen is the one thing that you could take to scale, but because the infrastructure equipment is expensive and because it is a chemical process, we're converting electricity to change molecular structures and then later combusting those molecules, it's only about 50% efficient energy into energy out. And in today's economic conditions, it doesn't pencil. Maybe it will someday. We recognize that if we got it right, we could do something that made a huge economic contribution right now based on this thing that's happened in electricity by doing something much simpler. Don't do any chemistry, convert electricity to heat, that happens at 100% efficiency in your toaster, in your hairdryer. Let's use that same material and let's store that heat. And that's an area that a lot of work has been going on. The solar industry has used liquid salts, nitrate salts for decades. The more you know about that, the less you like them, but it works. There are others working on low-tech things like using crushed rock and science projects using liquid aluminum, liquid sodium and aluminum. That's my favorite. There's a fun mix. Uh, liquid silicon, heating graphite in inert atmospheres. There are a lot of things that might hold promise that might take three to five years to become bankable. But if you want to go to, you know, we're in a hurry to solve this problem. And if you want to go big, if you want large private capital to flow, you must have technology that is investment grade, that is bankable so that project finance that needs low risk for low return is applicable. That is what takes technology to scale. That's what's most eagerly and urgently needed. We recognize that a 200 year old technology that the steel industry uses for heat storage at every blast furnace have these things called blast stoves that are full of brick that is alternately heated to about 1400 Celsius and then cooled back down on about a one hour cycle. These things last for 50 years. They're deployed. There are millions of tons of this brick around the world. We recognize we could combine these two things to deliver a system that did not have 50% energy into out, but 98% energy into out. And was built on materials that were intrinsically proven and bankable so that we could go fast. On the outside, it looks fairly boring. It's only possible today because of supercomputer comp computational fluid dynamics and finite element analysis and AI system controls. And, you know, that we're building something that is very simple, but was very interesting and complicated to design. Um, and we're setting out to solve that problem that we talked about of replacing fuel combustion for everything from 
heating water, to making high pressure steam, to making aluminum and cement and glass, the high temperature processes. It turns out that that brick material that's used at the blast furnaces is suitable for a very wide range of temperatures. And we are really solving for speed. The couple of years of science and investigation are behind us. And we are right now making the journey from the lab through late stage prototypes to first customer installations this year, uh, with a goal of being at very large scale next year and the year beyond and looking very hard at the project finance community and the pathways that enable scaling the fastest. John, we completely agree with you that having accessible energy during periods with low intermittent electricity is huge. One question I wanted to follow up on is the material of these bricks. So often we see renewable energy equipment being dependent on very difficult materials to source, such as cobalt or lithium ion. And sometimes we find that these rare minerals are actually so challenging to get that the extraction is really bad for the environment. Can you walk us through a little bit more about the bricks, how they're composed, and how you guys bring them into your process? Sure. The world makes vast amounts of brick today. Every oil refinery, every cement kiln, every high temperature process unit is lined with various kinds of brick. Many of those bricks have to deal with abrasion and chemicals and all kinds of things. We're using the simplest high temperature brick. There are many different types of materials that can suffice, but a simple statement is that bricks are pretty much made from dirt, various kinds of dirt. Uh, in our case, the, the materials that are used in our temperatures, it's exactly the same material the blast furnaces use. They're made from earth abundant materials that are everywhere. There are places in Missouri where you dig up the clay, you put it in an oven, that's your brick material. There are other places where you mix sand and another material and you put it in a, you know, you put it in a kiln that creates your material. So in different places in the world, the particular material will be different, but what is the same is the geometry and the way the material is used in a system. And there is nothing toxic, nothing limited supply, nothing that can catch fire or release anything and nothing that degrades. You build one of these units, it will have the same energy storage capacity 30, 40 years from now than it has today. And in that respect, because we're not doing chemistry, we don't have the degradation mechanisms that electrochemistry based systems have. And we don't have the complexities that they have in terms of reliance on particular elements that may be in short supply. You've touched on what was going to be my next question a little bit already, which was which industries rely on industrial heat for their manufacturing processes. But maybe going beyond that, what are the temperature ranges that are currently hard to decarbonize? Um, and are there specific temperatures that your product would fit in especially well? Yeah, that's a great question. And the first approximation, the answer to your question has been all of it. That is, there have not been, you know, we're just 
making this transition from electricity is more expensive than fuel to electricity is less expensive than fuel. And now once we have that, it's only intermittent electricity that is less expensive than fuel. So, okay. Well, the first thing we need is something that is cheap and durable for making that conversion. And then the next is, okay, now what is the temperature range that we need? There have been lots of studies on this matter about who are the big dogs. It's very heavily weighted. Um, steel, cement, and chemicals are 40% of the total, something like that. And what's interesting about those is that many of the, the, uh, the applications, you can get to about 60% of total world industrial heat demand below 800 degrees C and then getting the rest of it, you get up to about 1500 degrees C. Um, it, with the exception of the steel industry, which really needs a source of heat at 2,500 so that the product can be heated to 1600. You gotta be storing energy at a higher temperature than you're delivering it to some process. Cost versus storage temperature as you get to the highest temperatures rises, the cost per unit of energy stored rises. But fundamentally, you know, we settled on, we were solving first for low cost. And that turned out to take us up to about 1500 degrees as the range that we can cover, which is approximately 80% of total industrial energy use. And again, by with, if we used more expensive heaters. If we used more expensive brick that had more specialty, that number will go up to 1,895 or 92% of, of energy use. But the first pro again, the first problem was an economic problem. And the second one is a temperature problem. The other energy storage technologies that have been around the liquid salts, for example, top out at about 570 degrees Celsius. Now you can serve a lot of the market with that, but their biggest problem is cost and safety. Um, that that's one example, but people do focus on the temperature matter. And that is a problem that we've solved, but I would argue the fact that we have solved, here's a technology that can go with speed and with low cost and scale. Those are at least equally as important. Part of the economic problem is obviously having access to renewable energy and these industries or plants are not necessarily always located with direct access to solar and wind energy. Um, you're based in California, which at times has excess renewable energy. Are there specific geographic areas that are more attractive to Rondo or are you seeing the entire U.S. or on a global scale, the entire world as a addressable market. I'm going to answer your question in two or three pieces, and I will get to the core question that you asked in just a moment. First of all, let's go back to the top. So the world has on the order of 800, between eight and 900 gigawatts of, of wind in the world, the same about, about the same for solar, just worldwide. According to the IEA, replacing the energy that's used for industrial heat today, 85 exajoules. That's about 9,000 gigawatts of new generation that is needed. We are not, yes, there are early things where we're scraping up some excess energy, but just 
let's bring that down to a California level example, because we're here in California getting started. We have about a 40 gigawatt peak electricity demand. We have a little less than 30 gigawatts of PV on the system. And as you point out, yeah, there are periods where there's overgeneration because of time of generation, time of use mismatch. We burn more natural gas in California for industrial heat than we do for electric power generation. And just replacing the industrial heat that we use in California, that gas, we're going to need to build a hundred gigawatts of PV to replace that. And that's in chunks of like two and a half gigawatts at this cement plant, you know, one gigawatt at that refinery, uh, you know, 500, 800 megawatts at that glass factory. Uh, the scale is kind of hard to get your mind around. Now, your question about wh what is the access to renewable electricity? That is of course the core matter. Um, because if we're going to use electricity as the foundation for decarbonizing, the first thing we need is what electricity. So, um, the fact that we use it intermittently means that there's been a lot of the study about decarbonization with electricity. Let's convert over to electric boilers, electric arc furnaces, those things like every time you look at those, what you find is now your industrial loads make the grid have to have higher peak capacity because you're running them all the time. What we find instead is if you have what people are broadly calling indirect electrification, you're capturing electricity intermittently. Now your transmission, you may be using those same wires to carry more megawatt hours when they weren't used previously, or very particularly, as you mentioned, you're absorbing energy that would otherwise be curtailed. Now, where in the world is that a matter? In Northern Chile, there are projects that experience 55% curtailment right now. There, that's true of a, a couple selected locations here in California right now. Um, the place where the deployment of renewable energy is most critically needed to go as fast as possible, as you know, is Europe today. The UK and Europe have vast opportunities and planned offshore wind parks. The critical matter for those offshore wind parks is integrating that energy into the onshore demand. The deployment of heat batteries like ours or other intermittent loads is a huge accelerator for the deployment of renewables in Europe. Industrial heat is the single largest use of natural gas in Europe right now. So there is this sort of odd thing that industrial heat that's powered by intermittent electricity becomes a fundamental tool to get more renewables on the system. And the, the curtailment and the intermittency and the, the very low price associated with intermittent electricity is a solution for industrial heat. These two problems become the solution to each other because there's this bridge now, this new tool in the toolbox. And John, following up on that, one of the key reasons energy storage is so economic is because it can take advantage of energy arbitrage. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with that concept, it essentially means taking energy from the grid and storing it when prices are low and then using it or selling it back when prices are high. So given the industrial loads that 
Rondo is servicing. Are you worried that you are almost eating your own lunch and increasing prices during what were previously low price periods? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's exactly how people think about energy storage, right? Is it's I'm moving electricity from time A to time B from on-peak generation to on-peak load. Remember, we're talking about serving entirely new loads that today are served by fossil fuel that have nothing to do with the electricity sector. And the size of those loads is enormous. So by definition, these some of some of what you said of like are other things going on in absorbing you know what is otherwise low price power are you going to be eating your own lunch and the answer is probably right this is a much much about one it's about one-fifth the cost per unit of energy stored or less than any electrochemical battery and the scope of demand is such that one may find large industrials participating in wholesale markets and eliminating the negative prices, effectively setting a floor. But in almost every case, what we're really, the the pricing that we're looking at is the marginal economics for new intermittent generation. So the, the grid wholesale spot market dynamics that people are building storage on, yeah, yeah. But that's not this, this is what is the price if i'm buying energy four hours a day from your solar facility i'm going to be part of your load stack what's that price look like i'm going to be buying only the on peak you know i'm going to be buying counter to your other price dynamics for your offshore wind what's the price that we can establish between us this this is a class of load that will make new renewable projects more profitable and can lock in for industrials long-term energy supply costs where today they have to be price takers. No one will write you a 20-year fuel supply contract that you particularly like, right? You can now go get that a 20-year electricity supply contract that you really like. So it's not only immediately beneficial, it all you know eliminates all of your scope one emissions maybe a substantial portion of your scope too, but it, it, you know, you're repositioned with respect to risk versus folks that haven't made that transition. I think that's a really interesting point. We've seen in traditional renewable energy markets that PPA lengths are decreasing dramatically. We used to see traditionally 25, 30 year contracts for these facilities to match their lifespan, but those have gone down. So it sounds like Rondo is really focused on providing contract opportunities for renewable developers again, which I think would be enticing for those developers. But would you talk a little bit more about what contract structures you're pursuing? Because I think that's really important when you think about the risk profile of the company. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, do we have two hours? I don't think we do. Uh, The... uh, Look, every industrial today, whether you're making potato chips, tomato paste, petroleum, or cement, you know, you people buy energy as a service. They buy coal and natural gas as a service. They'd like to buy renewable heat as a service. They've learned to buy, you know, some amount of renewable electricity. Corporates and industrials have learned how to to uh, uh, buy, and the contract structures 
are probably going to be somewhat different than they are in the utility space. And there are unique opportunities and challenges. You want to build a wind farm in Oklahoma? I'm told that the interconnection time is now on average 10 years. You want to build a new solar project serving the grid in California? Interconnection time is about seven and a half years. You want to provide an off-grid solar array under contract to a manufacturer, again, of food or cement. You can do it off-grid and you might be permitted in under 60 days in some places. So there's a new, a, it's adjacent to what's going on, a new set of types of projects. They may have substantially better returns. We're seeing substantially better returns than in the utility scale space, two and three times the IRR. But to your point, if I have an asset that's got a 35-year life and I have a customer who wants a 10-year tenor on a contract, how am I going to think about that? What is its second use? There are lots of problems like that to solve. And, you know, the, I observe with interest, the dropping tenor of PPAs in the market and the financial analysts who all believe that there will be this merchant value at the end, at the same time as everybody, you know, there, there are a lot of interesting bets that are being made on post PPA value. We are finding the folks that we're working with to provide heat as a service. Um, we're finding creative approaches to those problems. And I think they're going to be different in different locations because, you know, a technology like this can always pivot to be integrated with the grid in some way. If the off taker, again, whether they're making potato chips or lithium or, or copper or whatever, if the off taker ceases their demand because it's electricity, it's fungible, right? The Rondo units could be relocated to someone else. It's, you know, in that regard, it's very different than what I did in the CSP business where there was a single asset that did only deliver energy at a single point. So I'm not denying these contract challenges exist, but they are readily addressable. And in some respects, I look at them as somewhat simpler. They're there are less risky bets than some folks are taking in the utility sector today. When you are talking to potential customers, what are your primary selling points? Is it the cost saving factor? Is it reducing emissions? Is it a, a hybrid between the two or something completely different? Uh, could you add a little color on that? So we are uh making the transition now from the lab to large-scale deliveries we're doing a first two deliveries this year we have not yet completed those and we've not yet announced those but uh those are giving us the foundation for large heat as a service projects next year those you know the those units are under contract we were cash flow positive last quarter building those units and our early customers have bought units with cash, even though it was very early on because our economics were so compelling in their application. Our first, our, our first customer has no interest in talking about green value, no interest in publicity. They don't want to be known. And it was straight up economics that drove that. But you asked a great question. And I think a number of folks are driving scope one emissions reductions, right? Lots of companies are now on the Paris Accords curve or steeper curves. And, you know, that's doing God's work in the world, right? We all need to be, every single sector of the economy needs to be on these curves. And 
this industrial space has until recently rightly been considered the most difficult to transform. So, and again, we talked earlier about what are your options, this option being the lowest cost scope one emissions track by far, in some cases, that's simple driver, right? In other cases, it is straight up. What are my economics against fuel with this local renewable electricity supply price, this local fuel price today? Electricity through a Rondo unit driving an industrial process in Saudi Arabia is one half the cost of oil-fired heat. No carbon price, no energy security matter, straight up economics, solar PPA prices, fuel prices. So there are places where pure economics drive things forward. The same is true in Latin America and Australia. And then in other places, if we consider the European situation today, it is about energy security, domestic energy that cannot be turned off, that nobody has their finger on the pipeline, that if it is much lower cost and takes me out of this market volatility, the only question is how fast can I get it? And obviously that's a problem we're working on solving. Pivoting a little bit here, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your fundraising process. I know that in February, Rondo announced you had raised $22 million from Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Energy Impact Partners, two widely known names in the space. Congratulations, by the way. But we were hoping you could walk our listeners through what your fundraising process looked like and what you think BEV and EIP saw in you that made them excited and what you saw in them and why you thought they were ideal partners. Yeah, thank you. And I'll start with the last thing. Yes, we think they are, we think they are ideal partners and, and we're delighted they think the same of us. When we started this, we had an end in mind. I had a team I'd worked with before and we spent some time doing concept down selection, evaluating a number of technology directions. It wasn't really the time to bring in venture financing for, well, they have a goal, but they don't really have a technology. We don't know what anything about what their IP or traction is going to be. And, um, we actually, uh, have been in this business a long time. We wound up raising funds in the form of a safe series of safe notes with folks who were particularly interested in our technology. They had either the business or the marketplace connections to understand what we were doing, what it could be. Um, so that carried us for 15 months, something like that. And all right, we're ready to start talking to venture investors. Who should we be speaking to? Cause my goal was to have a very clear plan, the core of the team, uh, the technology and the IP kind of all secured by the time. We did an A, so it was very clear what investors were investing in. And I mentioned that I think this, these two investors are just absolutely uh, key. Uh, Breakthrough, as you know, have tremendous technical depth. They do sector analysis. They make multiple bets in sectors that they consider to be critically transformative. They don't invest in anything that isn't going to deliver at least a 1% reduction in world emissions. And, um, by the way, I mean, on our rollout, we think we hit 1% of world emissions in under a decade and 15% in 15 years, which sounds nuts until you look at the scope of the demand. 
the availability of the primary materials. And, you know, if we're even half right, the economics are overwhelming that this is a technology that can go to very large scale. And energy impact partners, you know, many of their investors come from the electric power industry. And, you know, if we're using electricity for decarbonization, um, those are the folks who are going to deeply be engaged in a variety of ways in taking this to enormous scale. So, and the fact that they understood, they had a team that had been studying these matters of electrification. How does it happen? And what we've talked about indirect electrification, I think their understanding has been tremendously valuable for us. So from our standpoint, we really started working on raising a series A when we had the pieces together and we did not in fact price or, or, you know, move to uh, negotiation on term sheets until we had secured our first unit order. We had the foundation of the team together. We had patents filed with 643 claims. So we were, we were fortunate that we were able to make that progress so that we had a pretty clear business to invest in at A. And as a result, I think we, you know, we're delighted with the partnership between the two firms that is positioning us for very rapid growth. Yeah, congratulations on that. Um, obviously, great names to have as backer. And from their perspective, with all the upfront work you had done and confirmed unit order, um, I imagine that made the diligence process and their investment decision a lot easier. Um, pivoting a little bit, given that we are an MBA podcast and our listeners are either current or recent MBAs in the energy and climate space, I'm sure at least a few would be interested in any advice you have for individuals looking to start their own company in the climate space or join an early stage company. Um, and then maybe on top of that, any fundraising best practices or lessons you learned throughout your process with Rondo or even prior to that? Well, the first thing I, I have to say is, you know, you are doing the right thing. There is nothing more important than bringing, you know, phenomenal business skills to the matter of energy and climate. There is no more urgent challenge on earth, right? Just, uh, and the way the problem is going to be solved is not by waiting around for government policies to kick people in the ass to move grudgingly. It is absolutely, you know, creativity and brains and, uh, you know, <laughs> all I can say is there aren't enough of you working on, you know, as MBAs in energy and climate. So first of all, good on you. <laughs> Second, I mean, advice, I would caveat any advice I had by saying, I was originally an engineer. I come from a perspective of saying that, uh, in some cases, markets don't exist until the technologies that enable them exist. On the other hand, that was, I would have told you that much of my career, there was no market for iPhones until the iPhone existed. Right. On the other hand, this is completely different, right? There are, there's giant, giant, urgent demand. There will be. Uh, many different approaches to addressing that. There are many technologies that I look at and just sort of dismiss out of hand if they can't, 
if you can't see that it's going to hack it economically as it goes to scale, that it, the ones to work on are the ones that can go to giant scale, right? And the problems in taking them to scale, one of the lessons that was slowly beaten into me over my career is that the financial engineering is just as important as the mechanical and the electrical engineering. Yes. Shots on goal matter, right? You know, it is not going to be just one thing, but you need to look at where those shots on goal are headed, right? I think we see a lot of things that to my mind can never either hit cost or scale. There are a lot of things that are interesting to work on. Um, the other thing though, I would say though, is, uh, we see this in the tech industry today where I was talking to somebody who was building a company that provided APIs to improve traffic to a particular class of, uh, web services that like it was extraordinarily subtle and narrow. That's because there's a developed market, right? Every de market develops niches. We are still at this time when the big chunks are being laid in place, but there are tremendous contributions in these niches, right? The folks who are doing, I was talking to somebody that it was working on optimizing the capacity of existing transformers, you know, there are going to be tons and tons of opportunities in this area. But I mean, the one thing that I will say, which again, is coming from my own perspective is electricity is the answer to almost all of these stationary energy needs. That's a phenomenal thing because we have the technologies today to replace all the electricity that we generate from fuels, right? There is a lot of belief that the world needs carbon capture. Um, switching to electrification as a foundation for eliminating its emissions before they happen is guaranteed to be cheaper today and far cheaper in five and 10 years. So it is absolutely an area to focus on and explore um, where you see opportunity. Now, as to, you know, starting something new joining an organization, you know, that's a more complicated thing. Focus on finding teams that you enjoy working with and tackle big challenges. Make no little plans. They have no power to inspire men's minds. Make big plans. Architect named Daniel Burnham said that a long time ago, and it's true. I think that's a great sentiment to end on. Um, John, thank you so much for your time. This was very, very interesting. I know I learned a lot. Um, we went a little bit above our allotted time here, but there was a lot to cover. So thanks so much and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for your interest. Bye -bye. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Stay tuned for new episodes and connect with The Warden Current on Twitter and Instagram for all up-to-date information and background on all of our co-hosts.